William Little is a uh, professor in Victoria in Canada and a sociologist, theorist, Aikidoka, and I'm talking to him today. Hello, Bill, how are you doing? Very good, thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah, so it's early in the morning there and it's it's almost evening here and um, we're just marvelling at the, the the wonders of modern technology, aren't we? So uh, with Zoom and everything. But um, you are, I mean, we've met once or twice before, I think. You've been to conferences and you've published in the journal. And I mean, to me, from, so from what I've read of your work, you're a sociologist by training, you read cultural theory and cultural philosophy and you do Aikido and you kind of, you approach Aikido through these different philosophical lenses of, of philosophers like Giorgio Agamben, Michel Foucault, Deleuze and Guattari. And I mean, the, the first question that I have for you is, do you think that your choice of this kind of nexus of theorists, this post-structuralist field is kind of necessary or, or is it just like it just so happens to be helpful or would there might there be other philosophical traditions that would be equally as fruitful for you or is it something about Agamben or about Foucault that kind of made you draw the two together what what, what kind what do you think happened there well yeah I guess uh, you know the simple answer would be uh, those those were the um, thinkers that I was involved with or, or that I've been interested in from you know, from my master's, well, undergraduate on. Um, but um, I mean, one thing that's been quite really, quite in interesting about martial arts studies and my introduction to it through your journal and, and work and so on is that um, when I was stumbling over some of the concepts, because I'm not actually a trained philosopher, I wish I had, wish I had more of that background, you know, as a sociologist, we come into a somewhat more superficial um, approach to it. So I get stuck on something like in a gambin, in particular, for example, uh, you know, I was quite fascinated by his analysis and critique of power, his use of Foucault to discuss um, biopolitics, but then his, his sort of supplementing of Foucault to discuss the power that operates through sovereignty, in particular the sovereign exception, um, what happens when states uh, suspend the laws during types of times of crisis. Mm. Um, but his kind of um, antidote to that, or his, uh, the focus of his research came down to this concept, this strange concept that he called form of life, form hyphen of hyphen life hyphen and when he tries to define it it's kind of like you know yeah this sounds this sounds good but what, where's a where's a concrete tangible example you know where is for the sociologist where's where's the where's the evidence where's the social form in in in, in everyday social life that i can examine and um you know weirdly also i've been practicing aikido uh and you know pretty steadily for the last, you know, I started as a young guy, but uh, moved around quite a bit and um, didn't get a regular practice going until about 15, 16 years ago. And then was quite dedicated, but you know, the two sides of my life didn't actually meet until, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like, okay, well, form of life, this, uh, you know, I think that I can actually begin to unravel what Igamben means by beginning to think about a little bit more 
theoretically or uh, about what we do in the martial arts. So that's that's kind of why you know Agamben was so central to my uh, has been so central to my attempt to write about the martial arts. It's because um, the martial arts themselves offered a kind of a way into a concept which I otherwise you know, it's like a fuzzy concept that sounds, oh, that sounds really good. It sounds like it solves all the problems that a gambling points out yeah. as a kind of antidote to all the, the forms of power that are operating on us. And yet what is, you know, what, is that, what does it actually mean? And then when I, you know, then I go back and I start reading, um, you know, Mori Ueshiba's essays, uh, the way in which he begins to pose um, the nature of Aikido, um, really in a sense, I get uh, as a response to the crisis of, of the Japanese uh, Pacific War, um, um, trying to think of a martial art that would, in a sense, still be a martial art, but would free one from the militarism, free one from the, basically the state of exception of that long period of uh, Japanese invasion of Asia and the war with uh, uh, Europe and the States and so on, mm -hmm. and his reflections on what a martial art would be in a time of peace or a peaceful art um, um, all revolve around some kind of integration or Aiki, essentially harmonization, uh, a reintegration of the, of the body, a reintegration of the uh, of the individual with, with the forces of the universe, with universal key, and so on and so forth. And so if, if the underlying concept of a gambin seemed to be a kind of a, uh, of this form of life concept was a kind of a non-alienated existence, somewhat akin to Karl Marx's notion, but you know, different in a different kind of a register. Um, more high Shiva is also talking about an, an integrated, a non-alienated existence. And moreover, uh, because Agamben and Foucault, uh, Deleuze and so on are often speaking about things which have to do with the body, with in a sense, truths that are accessed through the body, truths which can only sort of inadequately be expressed in language. Um, um, the uh, concept in Moriai Ueshiba's work is also that it's only through continuous training that one can actually go through the transformation required in order to attain this, this knowledge, this, uh, this knowledge of integration, this Aiki. Otherwise, it just, it's just a kind of a word. It's just a, uh, maybe it's an aspirational word, or, or, but it's just a, a, an abstract concept. It's only through the body that one can understand what it actually means to harmonize your energy. So, it's a beautiful kind of uh, opportunity to, to connect these two worlds, which I had, you know, for whatever reason, Aikido did in the evening, school, university work I did in the day, and, and you know, between them, there wasn't very much interaction. Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, I could go on at length about like what I love about uh, Foucault, uh, Deleuze, and, uh, and Agamben, uh, but uh, maybe. Well, maybe we can, but because I mean, I was thinking, is it, is it something that um, is the Aikido practice? Is the the regular disciplined practice of a of an embodied physical um, pr practice like Aikido? Is that something that 
you think might give you a, an extra perspective on on these philosophers and on these on the things that they talk about that maybe someone who doesn't do martial arts or, or equivalent maybe they couldn't get it because I ask it, my question is loaded because I was I was once talking to a, a very eminent professor of um, you know Chinese literature and culture and I kind of said, well, I don't really know much about China or Chinese culture, but what I do know, I accessed all through martial arts. It all came through my everything around martial arts. And she said that she thought I had quite um, a, a sort of unique and, and strong grasp of things that people wouldn't otherwise get. And then similar, but from the other way around, recently I was starting to read the work of Peter Sloterdijk, the German philosopher who is equally inspired by Foucault and Nietzsche and, and the, the same kind of body of, of, of thinkers as, as a lot of other post-structuralists. And I talked to other academics and they said, oh yeah, I remember Sloterdijk, really difficult, like really difficult. But for me, he was just talking about the stuff that we do every day, the, the kind of meditative ascetic approach that we have. And, and when I've read lots of reviews about Sloterdijk, people don't seem to get it. It's like, I think you, you don't get it. You're not getting it because like, you're either preoccupied with his reading of Nietzsche or you're preoccupied with his, his what he says about Christianity or Hinduism or something. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about a, 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 the insights that you can just access by regularly being involved in something that could be regarded as ascetic, such as daily, daily forms, daily meditation, daily qigong or something like that so i mean that that's why i asked do you think that it's something about your physicality that enabled you to go agamben or foucault i get it, it it's simple it makes perfect sense it, it unlocks all of this or is that the kind of process one of those variants or something different yeah no it's definitely um i, I think you've, you've kind of put your 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 finger on it it's it's um and i'm saying like it, it particularly with Agamba, when it came to him talking about this concept of form of life, uh, I, I just found it I, I, somewhat mystifying. You know, I mean, I, I liked it, right? And I said, like, oh, I, this must be right, this must be true, but it's kind of like, I had actually no, uh, no way of accessing what that meant. And then Slaughterdyke is, is an interesting character too, because I mean, I, I think he, um, he wants to redefine religion um, as, simply all the sets of ascetic practices by which one transforms oneself through multiple different cultures and so on. And, um, and I think that there's a piece in um, Michel Foucault's later lectures where he, he seems to be exclusively interested in these practices of the self, which we see all around us in, 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 in Western uh, life, you know, um, everything from yoga to, you know, nutritional regimes to, um, you know, if, if you're just doing a hobby these days, you've got to somehow like get into it so deeply that you, you make your life revolve around it. But one thing about the, the so-called spiritual practices, which uh, Foucault begins to talk about is that um, he says, again, it's a, it's a mysterious thing. He says something to the effect that uh, spiritual practice is different from an ordinary practice of the self. Uh, a spiritual practice of the self is different in the sense that one has to, uh, one is ascetic, one, one, one submits to a kind of um, 
a regular regime of, of disciplinary practices that one voluntarily poses on oneself, but uh, it differs from other types of uh, practices that we're more familiar with in that you have to actually, in order to attain the knowledge that is offered by say Aikido, you actually have to go through some sort of fundamental transformation in yourself. And I think this is also Sloterdijk's point uh, about like what characterizes a, a religion. And so what does that actually mean though? I, you have to change yourself. And it's, you know, I think that again, I probably could have done practice Aikido on simply, despite all the talk about harmony and mind, body and spirit and so on, I probably could have practiced Aikido on the purely physical plane for my entire life, uh, you know, learning techniques, learning how to do them better. Uh, that's, that's an embodied knowledge, you know, there's kind of like where the person's balance is, where the weight is, how you respond to that. That's, again, something if I wanted to describe it in language, you know, I could, I could talk for pages about something which is, takes only an instant to know in your body. And so there's, there's, there's something about the true bodily knowledge there. But um, in order to like take the next step or whatever, uh, as Morihai Shiva describes it, to become, to transform yourself to a higher knowledge, you have to, have to somehow go through a process um, by which you are fundamentally changed. And it's very difficult, I think, for us, um, uh, you know, coming from the typical kind of materialist Western backgrounds, kind of like the body is just the thing carrying me around. Sometimes it gets injured, sometimes I can train, it gets faster, so on and so forth. I can recognize that there's something going on there, but it's sort of like the vehicle that carries me around. But it wasn't until I, I practiced um, Qigong, for example, and they said, okay, st stand in the horse stance here and do that for half an hour a day. And eventually you'll feel um, um, your qi energy and you will be able to, you know, create a, say, a circuit. You have your, you know, you have your hands out and you get a circuit between your aigu points here and, and you're, uh, you'll no longer be having to like use your muscles to hold your arms up your arms will hold, hold themselves up by themselves because you will be in a uh, circuit of chi energy. And I, and I was thinking, you know, myself, like, oh yeah, well, that, that sounds great. That'd be amazing. I'm never going to learn that. But then actually you learn it. It's like, oh, there's, there's another type of energy here in my body, which has these properties. It seems to be moving in a circular, you know, and so it's like kind of a trend, like I'm not exactly sure how that happened, right? Like how do you does it just happen or do you have to somehow change a little thing in yourself in order to be able to experience that? Um, so, um, yeah, so these concepts of like a spiritual practice in Foucault or uh, in Slaughter Dyke or the form of life in Agamben um, are in a certain way, I think, would have been inaccessible to me if I hadn't had this body uh, practice uh, Aikido or Qigong or, or various other forms. Um, at the same time, what, what, what's been interesting to me is the way in which by becoming aware of this other element, this say spiritual dimension, um, and again, using spirit in the way Foucault talks about it, it's not kind of not Jesus or anything or, or God or so on, but it's more like what 
a, a, an access to a truth that you cannot only you can't access unless you change something in yourself. Um, by becoming aware of this aspect, it could actually it began to actually improve my aikido. Um, right, it began to like take seriously this notion that okay, you're not fighting with somebody, you're not pushing people, you're not using your muscles. You're actually you've got to be aware of the entire space of the interaction. You've got to be aware of um, like weirdly the uh, tensions in a space, like uh, an ordinary kind of point of view is it's just air between you and your point. But of course, when you know, your one side of you is, is exposed, the other side of you is actually open to an attack, there's a kind of like a pressure in that space. And there is also vacuums in that space. There's also vortices in that space. There's also all, all these other kind of dimensions of, of, of the situation, which you're otherwise unaware of, um, become visible and you begin to move in that space. And I think if you look at, you know, even the old uh, Moriyai Ushiba that one sees on videos, you see him, as an 80-year-old man, 70-year-old man, um, 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 throwing these young guys around. And, you know, obviously um, he wasn't as strong as he was when he was in his 50s and so on, physically strong, but it's actually the manipulation of the space, the anticipation of the other person's movement, um, which takes you to this next level. So there's been a kind of, anyways, I guess it was the point is there's been a kind of lovely reciprocity between the academic work, which opens me up to the kind of wider implications, political and otherwise of the study um, and, the, uh, and, and the martial art itself, which allows me to actually parse some of these otherwise obscure, I mean, talk about obscure, like Gilles Deleuze's concepts of, 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 of affect and war machine and um, a different, a different uh, uh, sort of um, call it a plane of imminence. These, these concepts, which are, uh, no, love them, but what do they mean? Become actually tangible through the practice yeah. and open up your practice along a different line. So, so, so is, the, is think, think okay. about the, the notion of change um, that you're talking about. So I understand what you're saying when you, especially with something like Tai Chi or Qigong, where, where you practice something and you can't do it and you just can't do it. And then you just can. Well, one day you just can. I remember learning, practice, practicing the applications of diagonal flying, which, you know, you get in judo, you presumably get in Aikido as well, where you just basically turn and drop someone, you get your arm under their shoulder, and you just turn and you just drop them. And I, I just couldn't do it, I couldn't do it, couldn't do it, couldn't, and then just, oh, then you can, and you can't, you can no longer remember not being able to do it. And also the way that you move or the way that you move people or the way that you can thud them out of the way with like, you know, with press or something like this. And he can't remember not being able to do that. And it, it, it reminds me of something that my mother once said to me when I was trying to, I was trying to teach my children, my young toddler in nappies and like, or whatever it was just like, and my mother just said, look, just chill out because they can't do it now. But one day they'll just be able to do it. They'll just do it one day. So just do it for them now. 
And I'm wondering if you're saying that the change is that the change in the self, and you're talking about spirituality, which is a term that I worry about and, and hesitate before using because I don't know what it means. Um, is it, are you just talking about that kind of change from one day you can't do something, next day you just can, that change, and you can't really communicate that to someone. You, go, you just have to practice, you just have to try. Or is it something that that practical change enables are you talking about a new perspective that is inexpressible in some way or is it just the fact that it's inexpressible to for me to say well one day i couldn't do this next day i can and and all i can do is show you the way so to speak but you just have to practice i mean what's the what does that change consist of or consist in do you think yeah okay well i mean there's a couple of things that come to mind because uh, uh, um yeah, definitely. I think that you know the ability to like do the technique, which again you can watch it. It's like this is how you do it, and you go up and do it. And it's like ah, this, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And then one day it works. I think that that is um, you know an embodied knowledge. That is a knowledge that you learn through the body, which you would have difficulty expressing that in language, and it points to a kind of a dimension of um of you know this is kind of odd you know given the background that we probably both share in structuralism post-structuralism but it points to uh a, an aspect an experience a dimension of experience which is in a sense outside of language which is obviously accessible by language we're talking about it right now but somehow that truth itself is not it, it has another dimension it has another you know dimension of weight dimension of proximity to the other person and so on which you feel and and that's the way that's how you learn it i think that the spiritual practice that that foucault indicates is something something more than that because i think you know any athlete goes through these bodily knowledges you talk about a child goes through these bodily knowledges and so on the ability to do things and then the next day they can um there's something uh you know, just the way in which uh, Osensei or Moriya Shiba talks about, um, um, you, know, I, you know, truly spiritual dimension, which is, uh, um, you know, how do you walk amongst the kami or how do you, uh, uh, and how do you elevate yourself to a kind of uh, um, uh, 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 an experience in which you are fully aware of flows of key in the universe and aligning yourself with those. I think that that's another, it is something that one accesses through the body that I don't think that um, we can really, uh, you know, using our uh, kind of Western um, sociology or philosophies can't really talk about, but we can experience or we can begin to experience, we can begin to open up that dimension. Like for example, I think it's the difference between you being able to do your technique and you being able to do your qigong and recognizing that, oh, there is a, there is key, there is a, an energy flow here that I wasn't aware of my entire life. It's obviously been there the whole time, but yeah. you know, my, yeah. my, 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 my face is getting all modeled, my hand, my, you know, I'm getting et cetera, et cetera, my, you can feel the energy moving uh, and then you begin to like, okay, what do I need to do to change myself in order to access that more? That begin, that is kind of like a step into this. Um, yeah. yeah, 
I mean, it's, it's spiritual, but it's, it's, you know, it's obviously, as you're saying, it's, a, it's, it's a interesting that you, you mentioned um, the, the kind of problems that people who are supposedly steeped and well-versed and kind of faithful to post-structuralist theory would, um, the problems they would have when you talk about something that evades language. It's got, it got me thinking about um, something that might segue into another one of your interests which is the theme of deep ecology that we can talk about in a minute. It's where it reminded me of the book by um, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. So Eve Sedgwick, as, as you know, was, a, was you know, a, an arch kind of queer theorist. She was one of the, the, the big people who used post-structuralism and deconstruction and Foucault and, and so on to, to, to really write about queer theory. And then towards, it was kind of towards the end of her life, when she just came out of the closet in terms of being really into Buddhism, really into Taoism. And in that book, it's called Touching Feelings, about affect and pedagogy and so on. She, she talks about, she wonders out loud whether she was drawn to deconstruction and post-structuralism because it seemed so Buddhist, or whether she was drawn to Buddhism because it seemed so post-structuralist, because it's kind of it's anti-essentialist, it's processual, it's not like our being isn't a fixed Aristotelian or Platonic entity or substance, we're always just in process, it's always just becoming. And so despite the fact that we may hesitate as academics, as professional academics, before we talk about things that escape language, we don't have to do that really to kind of draw deconstruction post-structuralism Deleuze and Foucault into relationship and into dialogue with, or into even intimate contact with Buddhism and Taoism and these these kind of anti-essentialist ontologies. I mean, what does that 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 and then we're close to also to we're in the orbit almost of questions of Taoism and therefore ecological concerns. Is this where your interest lies now? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's funny. I. Um... I, I, you know, <laughs> because of the martial arts studies, because of the conference a couple of years ago in Orange County, where we're, you know, we we're talking about politics of martial arts, uh, nationalism and all these issues. Um, I began to think about uh, my own introduction to martial arts. And I came across it in a philosophy class. Like I, uh, I have been interested in martial arts. In fact, I think I, I had done some karate. Um, and I, you know, I think I had a shared a fascination with Bruce Lee whenever I could see a Bruce Lee movie on, you know, Canadian CBC television, which was rare. You know, uh, I'd be glued to the set. But you know, that, that was about it. And then, and then a philosophy class on philosophy of the environment and deep ecology and Professor Alan Jenkson, he was a, a wonderful lecturer in that he would just spill stories, just spill, tell these yarns. And it would often walk, you know, this morning I was walking my dog and what an activity walking your dog is, like where the dog takes you into the world where you wouldn't go into the world yourself type of thing. Um, and so anyways, I, I just sort of reflecting on my introduction to, it was in this context, in the context of, he also taught a course on Eastern religion or Eastern philosophies. Uh, he taught a course on, on uh, environmental uh, philosophy, which morphed into his interest in what he called deep ecology. Um, it was in that context that he also talked about Aikido and, and he actually had a course credit uh, 
course uh, at UVic in which you could take Aikido and get a university credit. In any case, he invited mm -hmm. us, the philosophy class, to come, and uh, we went. And um, uh, unfortunately, he was also he was a lovely speaker, but he was kind of like a, sometimes oblivious to his audience. And so we would be sitting there in Seiza, was waiting for the opportunity to get up off of our knees finally, because they're just like burning or pain in pain. And, and he would be going on about the fine details. Anyways, uh, to get to your question there, um, I began to realize that my introduction to Aikido, which is associated at all the time with deep ecology, um, as Alan Jenkson described it, Aikido was a whole art that involved a kind of entire reorientation of one's life to a kind of condition of nonviolence, but also respect for nature or being immersed, immersing oneself in nature. Um, and I think this, you know, for my 20 year old mind was like, oh, this is, this is heaven. This is like, uh, you know, a, a living, a Laban's philosophy, right? A meaningful philosophy of tying these ideas about the nature of the world to an actual practice and of finding a, a reason, like why are we living? How do we live and so on? And I guess later on, uh, you know, preparing for that conference in Orange County, I began to think, well, actually, you know, most of the people I practice Aikido with and come across in, in our big um, seminars and so on, uh, have no ha, ha, don't have this background I just sort of these are my assumptions that Aikido was deep and deep ecology Aikido was a way of getting deeper into the natural world the, the Aikido forms were based on natural principles spirals and um, flow of energy and mutual respect and in a sense love Aiki as as love for uh, others and for, um, for the nature. And through Aikido practice, one could deepen one's relationship to nature and, and to the various forms of nature. Um, I began to realize that this was maybe a very rare little kind of segment of the Aikido world, mm -hmm. which I had to always assume was the entire thing, right? That everybody shared these same principles. So um, yeah. so. Uh, I began to reflect on, okay, well, what, as we were asked in that conference to reflect on the politics of martial arts, I began to think about well, what is the politics of Aikido? What is the politics of, of, of deep ecology itself? Because both of them are in a certain way apolitical. Uh, it, they don't have any obvious politics. And um, I mean, deep ecology obviously lends itself to the environmental movement. Um, Aikido obviously lends itself to kind of modes of reconciliation, uh, nonviolent interactions with others. But beyond that, it's not like it's not left or right. It's not, um, you know, communist, fascist, democratic, so on and so forth. It's kind of cutting a different uh, line through the whole kind of scene of politics. Um, so it does strike me that uh, the meeting point, this sort of getting back to your point about Buddhism and, and post-structuralism and so on, the, kind of the meeting point, the place where Aikido and deep ecology met was through the concept of harmony. And that's obviously a, also a politically dangerous concept. 
and has pretty, you know, uh, potentially dangerous political usages and has had, you know, the harmonized society well, is generally a, you know, this, you know, these feudal societies were harmonious, <laughs> you know, from the point of view of the historians or something, because they're written mm -hmm. from the point of view of the people on top and they involve the hierarchies and the body and, you know, an organic unity when everybody knew their place and stayed in their place type of thing. But I think the way in which harmony works, again, as a practice of the self, as an embodied thing that one only learns through some kind of deep embodied um, uh, daily practice goes the other way, basically unwinds or un, uh, um, deconstructs all these hierarchies on a continual basis. And so um, harmony with nature in the deep ecology, uh, you know, for maybe people who, again, like uh, my assumptions are that everybody knows what deep ecology is as well. And deep ecology uh, was the principle that all life, all living things have intrinsic value, that the world is not a resource that we can manage, uh, you know, in a good point of view, like, uh, like carbon management or um, sustainable development, all these sort of common environmental themes. Deep ecology said, no, that's, you know, that's still uh, a use of the environment as a resource that we can serve. What would it be like to orient our life and our civilization to uh, coexistence with nature, recognizing that each creature, each creature's life and trajectory um, is intrinsically as intrinsically valuable as a human life is, for example, how would we reorient ourselves to that? How will we develop a kind of a harmony with nature? Uh, how, how would we have to change society um, practices and so on? And anyway, so this concept of harmony uh, is the one that I think in Alan Drinkson's mind, my professor's mind, and um, in my own understanding, which, you know, again, having to go back into time to actually, okay, what is it that I actually think about this? Like, where did these ideas come from? Uh, harmony as a kind of a continual um, unraveling of relations of power, uh, uh, unraveling of our own self, in a sense, uh, again, uh, on, on this kind of path to self-transformation to be able to access a truth, truths of you know, living in a deeper way in the world and, and so on and so forth. Um, harmony, and again, tying into um, um, you know, Alan Watts's ways of liberation, um, you know, this kind of Taoist principle that is in us all, which is somehow buried for, for Alan Watts. And he, you just sort of have to like, somehow take a little uh, step to the left and, and see it, uh, otherwise you miss it. Otherwise you pave it over with your projects and so on. And so how can one get to a position in which you know, one can act without acting uh, all, these, all these kind of Taoist principles? And it seemed anyways that there is a politics in that. Uh, and it's one which I've been trying to think through by going back to my own history and, and to my teacher, uh, Alan Drumson's uh, kind of way of framing the issue of uh, the sort of accidental coincidence of, of a Japanese martial art, which has a Japanese lineage 
and a kind of uh, ecological movement, which developed all of a sudden, I think on the West Coast of North America, principally um, as a set of uh, ecological, uh, uh, working out a kind of uh, way of life based on an ecological understanding, these two things meet. Uh, and in that conjunction, in that combination, something new emerges, which is a, again, a form of life, I think, uh, taking it back to the gender. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's an awful lot in there. Um, it's interesting, what, what one thing, when you told me you were interested in exploring the idea of the relations between, say, Aikido and deep ecology, is I was wondering precisely the kind of thing that you mentioned, which is, are you assuming, and you just said that you did assume, that other Aikido practitioners would be like-minded when it came to an ethos or an ideology or possibly even something that we might call a politics. But as you suggested, you know, people kind of aren't, and I wonder, and I try to think back to every different martial arts discipline that I've been to classes and you think, some of them you just think no everyone's different here yeah, everyone they could be left wing right wing they could be green they could be they could be anything in this in this particular club here but then you go to some clubs like you go to a tai chi class and you my operating assumption is you know these people are hippies right <laughs> and nine times out of ten they are and you think well i am a bit part of the venn diagram of me maps on maps onto this 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 ethos but i wonder about to say that Aikido or deep ecology is neither left wing nor right wing. And I wonder about these, I mean, I wonder if it's a plane of imminence. I wonder if it's a trajectory. There's, uh, there's two thoughts fighting to get out here. One is, do you think that a practice like Aikido or maybe Tai Chi or Qigong has something that is imminent to it, like, or, 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 or was really likely to try and get out, which might be something that we might want to call ecological and ecological like a like a Taoist sort of Buddhist and therefore potentially ecological outlook and another one is a really a question I don't really expect you to be able to answer but it's something that I've noticed about ideologies of martial artists and it's it it's the way in which say in this COVID-19 pandemic it's astonishing the strange line that the strange cuts through people's belief systems that the anti-vax movement has. And you'll get people who, like, my instant assumption is, well, these are stupid people, but they're not stupid people. They're either, they might be like people in the in the BJJ community who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm just fit and I'm strong and all you need to be is fit and healthy. And I guess you're going to get Taoists and hippies who say, all you need to do is meditate a bit more and uh, and do some Qigong and, and I'll be strong because of my Qi. And so there's a, there's a line being cut here that doesn't fall into left or right. It doesn't fall into intellectual or non-intellectual, high culture, low culture. It's got a different plane that I, I wonder, you know, it's so many. So yeah, I, my question is, I've, I've, I've scuppered myself in the asking of the question, but you know, these things all seem to relate in a way that, that you might want to kind of broach some, at some point in your thinking about politics of, I, of Aikido and deep ecology and, and so on. I mean, what, pick up any of that, any of that, because there's too much there. Go, go with whatever you like. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have been um, definitely uh, 
uh, you know, trying to grapple with, I mean, there's a kind of, um, what I see in the politics of this is a kind of uh, art of disengagement from the um, frameworks of, of, you know, just the sort of mindless way in which, like looking at American politics from up here in Canada, it's just like, oh, it's like liberals and conservatives, right? And the conservatives are all sort of Donald Trumpets and the liberals are, you know, Clinton. And, and there's, you know, in Canada, at least we have three, you know, three options, but it just seems like, you know, the way po political systems get structured around these ideas, which then become looser and like, ever more simulacral in relationship to anything sort of tangible on, on the ground. And so there's something about, I mean, it was what I've been trying to explore with this deep ecology Aikido thing, which, you know, brings it back to the tangible way in which, you know, powers are exercised over our bodies in biopolitics and in sovereign power, according to Gem's analysis. And, what happens when we begin to um, unwind those powers or reverse those powers or or create a space in which those powers can be resisted and i think it you know there is a way in which focusing on the bodily truths of this uh do not lend themselves to any kind of like okay the aikidoists and the deep ecologists are going to walk forth in the streets and we're going to take down the government sort of thing but there is a way in which um, you know, for the deep ecologist, uh, and here I think of, um, you know, the beat poet Gary Snyder, uh, and, you know, his trajectory through all of the things that we've been taught from kind of uh, early appreciation of Zen Buddhism to ecology to uh, translating Chinese poems to going to study in Zen uh, monastery. Uh, at the end, in, at the end of the 1950s, and 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 um, you know his kind of uh, ethic of deep ecology, which would be you know you find yourself in a place, you sort of dig in there, and you start to build connections there, and you start to work on like how can we improve our relationship to nature here, and it means dealing with people from all different ways of thinking and trying to find some sort of common. Uh, you know, everybody's living in a place. We all want to protect this place. We all like this place. How do we, you know, how do we manage, you know? And, you know, I don't get, you know, obviously he's associated with um, hippies and beat generation and so on and so forth. But, you know, his, I don't read his politics as being, you know, he's like a Democrat or he's a Republican or something like that, right? There's a kind of a different mode. And there's something about the way in which, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, that what I've been particularly interested in is a kind of the space that opens up through the counterculture, through people like Alan Watts, who kind of uh, open up this space in which we begin to think about things like martial arts and, um, and ecology in, 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 a different, in a different, in a different way. And um, so, for example, I, I, you know, you read uh, uh, about Aikido in Japan, it doesn't have a countercultural 
reference point. It's not, or maybe it does now, right? In, in, in some of the ways that you've been talking about that, you know, uh, look at how the West has received Aikido and then they take this back and they rethink what Aikido means there. But, you know, originally, certainly uh, Moriai Oshiba is not a figure would one would consider as a countercultural figure. In fact, he would be much more the other way. His associations with, with the rise of militarism in, in Japan are, you know, take that as kind of like a pretty unsavory connection, some of them. Um, but he was himself influenced through uh, um, Geshi and the Amoto Kyo uh, kind of Shinto revival uh, movement. And in a certain way, his kind of way of thinking takes a step in a, in a weird way, apolitical outside of politics, disengaged from politics, but, uh, and also from religion, um, but opens up this whole world of, okay, so if I devote myself to trying to attain this, um, this uh, unity with the uh, universal key, what does life, what does my life become and what issues from that? And you know, in terms of a, a politics, it strikes me that you know, the more you try to focus on this uh, deepening one's relationship through bodily practice to this uh, dimension, um, which isn't readily accessible, from strictly empirical materialist means that one is constantly obliged to modify or unwind or jettison um, the ordinary kind of political um, left-right uh, concepts um, and become more fully focused on, on a kind of a tangible lived bodily uh, interaction with people centered and grounded and, and so on and so forth. And uh, it doesn't mean that you uh, obviously can't participate in politics, but politics seems to have this sort of arbitrary quality to it. Uh, again, for that conference, you know, when I was thinking about uh, in Orange County and I was thinking about the politics of Aikido, in the back of my mind, there's all the reports from The Guardian and so on about um, um, mixed martial arts and fascism and, 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 and so on and so forth. And you begin to think, well, is there some intrinsic politics to martial arts or are they uh, just freely available for any politic to come along and sort of label them and pick, pick them up in their own name? And obviously the, the relationship between martial arts and right-wing movements, uh, fascist-like movements is, is, is evident throughout history. And there's a lot of Good work on the relationship between nationalism and martial arts that's been being being done there. Um, but I was thinking, well, I mean that that was so different or so contrary to my experience of the martial arts, which had again immediately this association with ecology and the ecology movement. Um, but I began to think, okay, so what exactly is it in this practice of the self that um, uh, um, would resist the fascist tendencies. And that's where I, again, turn to um, Deleuze and Guattari, in particular, uh, Michel Foucault's preface to their anti-edifice, in which he just in a few short pages sort of outlines his take on what they're up to. And 
He describes it, interestingly enough, as a kind of a practice of the self and ethics uh, in which one tries to free oneself of fascism, not just simply the political movement fascism, not the state uh, structure of fascism, but the fascism within us. And so what type of um, ongoing practice do we have to engage in to resist our own fascist tendencies, our own, you know, I'm just the boss here, I'm gonna tell you what to do. And if you don't obey me, I'm just gonna smash you. And I'm gonna build up a whole kind of world you based on you know, power and my ability, you know, and my race and so on and so forth. How do we continually, I mean, these are traps that we easily slip into in our own thinking in whatever realm of life. At this direct individual practice of the self level, Foucault suggests that Deleuze and Qatari are describing a set of procedures, a sense, set, a, a set of ascetic practices that um, allow one to continually sort of resist those fascist tendencies. So um, again, I was thinking, well, the relationship between Aikido and, and deep ecology in this blending, in this sort of um, um, it's a meeting in the middle quality of these two kind of separate things is this sort of process of continually resisting a kind of a, 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 a micro-fascism um, and a constant sort of un, this word unraveling or disengagement from the ego, constantly modifying the ego in order to attain some sort of um, again, unity, some sort of harmony with nature. And again, the harmony with nature thing is something which comes and goes, right? Just like in practice, I don't know what your practice is like, but Nikita is like, wow, that was a really good throw. That, that just worked out amazingly. And then there's another one in which, oh, I, I really had to fight with, I, it wasn't, the, there wasn't a flow. I had to actually use my strength and I can hear Sensei shouting at me, stop using your arms there, you know, or whatever. Uh, so this harmony is a constant, like a constant kind of self-reflection on how one can continually attune oneself. And I think the same is with deep ecology, right? Deep ecology, uh, and both the Aikido and deep ecology or martial arts and deep, have this sort of, I think there is a, always a tendency for things to become fascistic uh, in the sense that in deep ecology, there was, for example, this sort of sense that um, you know the Earth First movement uh, here on the West Coast, which was uh, we are going to be warrior eco warriors out there protecting the Earth at whatever cost, no matter what the consequences are. We're going to spike trees. We're going to disable um, forestry equipment and so on and so forth. Uh, and we don't care about the, the, the best world was a world in which there were no humans, you know, humans have got to stop overpopulating the world, et cetera, et cetera. There's a kind of like, as a built into a, um, into a movement, um, all of these kind of principles are maybe good, but at the same time, the way they were exercised, you know, got the label. So deep ecology became labeled as kind of eco-fascistic in some ways, yeah. because people sort of uh, take these principles to club each other over the head with them and, and so on and so forth. Um, 
it seemed like, and, and with Aikido, it's obviously, you know, just Moriyahu Ashifa's history, like he was there training military officers and Japanese spies. He was talking about, you know, in the 1930s, he went through the stage of uh, his own, he separated from the Daitoryo uh, uh, style and made his own Aikibudo, again, on the principles of Aiki, but he was using it, um, you know, he had no qualms about uh, showing the Japanese spies how to break somebody's neck. You know, there's no kind of like, let's find a place where both people walk away alive and, 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 and better as an Aikido. But, you know, let's use these as martial principles. And so both, so separately, I think Aikido and deep ecology have these potentials to build themselves into things. And then all of a sudden, you know, my thing is better than yours and you get into conflicts. But in between the two, there's an interesting space in which um, there's a sort of continual unwinding of identities in this sort of constant uh, training in order to attain Aiki or, or, or harmonization. And there's an interesting politics in that. Like, again, I have, you know, what are the politics in that? I'm, you know, uh, I'm, Trying to, think out, <laughs> trying to think through it, but um, um, you know we have lessons from Gary Snyder and um, and so on, like Alan Jenkinson and so on, as uh, ways of living, which are constantly seeking greater harmony, greater in-depth relationship with nature, conscious awareness of nature, sinking into nature, and from that position, I think you know ways of life, which you know form of life political community all emerge in a, in a kind of a different way from a centered and grounded place. Anyways, yes. Okay. So um, I, try, I try to keep these podcasts less than one hour. Um, yeah. Sure. But that's, so I think we're, we're, we've made, we might have five minutes left or so before I break. Okay. My but um, um, so what, just, I guess, to wrap up, I mean, what, how far along are you with the project? What, where is it? Is it going to be a book? Are you going to do journal articles? Is this going to come out a piece at a time? Or are you planning a kind of magnum opus or, or, or what? <laughs> you know, what, what's, what are we looking at here in terms of, you know, when we're going to see a written word or a, or a, a lecture series or something? I mean... <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, the, the sad thing about it was that um, uh, I, I think that... Um, this was originally just going to be a chapter in uh, the book that uh, Andreas and, and Ben were putting together. And, you know, COVID happened. I got diverted into uh, building a house on my uh, island where I'm going to hopefully live a kind of deep ecological life at some point. So maybe the outcome of this will actually be uh, in, uh, in life. But um, it's uh, at the moment is a kind of a lengthy, overly long uh, essay in which I am sort of picking away at it. Just it's interesting the work process. I haven't, you know, again, I was away from it for several months, so um, coming back to it later with kind of refreshed ideas, it's kind of like, oh, this this is kind of interesting. I want, I'd like to actually focus on that more. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, um, yeah, maybe it will appear as a, an article. Okay. And um, I don't have yeah book ambitions. I mean, I, I would, if I could read Japanese, I think there's so much, you know, um, that I would love to know about 
Morihei Oshiba's politics and go back through that whole period and his relationship with the Emoto Kyo people and where all these items came from. It just seems so fascinating. And, and, and the literature on, 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 unfortunately, kind of the literature on Morihei Oshiba is, is so um, respectful, I'd say, that uh, it's either respectful or disrespectful, you know, and, and between those two. Um, uh, one has a hard time getting at the truth, but um, uh, uh, yeah, so well, that's I'm just working on a essay. That sounds like you need a, that's a kind of research project there. You need to, you need to organize something with a Japanese university with like-minded, you know, uh, equivalent researchers who, who can answer some of the questions that you can pose to them and then that sounds like a conference. At a conference. That sounds like a fab conference, like somewhere like Wasada or somewhere. Wow. Uh, that would be excellent. Let's sort that out. Let's let's have a let's do it. <laughs> translating um, translating Aikido or something um, conference. That would be great. But I'm gonna I'm gonna try and stick within my one hour rule and um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna thank you very much for um, taking the time out of your house building and your essay writing and your research. To, to talk to me. So thank you, Bill. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for the questions. They're great.